We continue our sermon series on Psalms for the summertime. And uh, before we open Psalm 88, which is our Psalm for today, let's uh, pray together the prayer for illumination, which is also from the Psalms and is printed in your liturgy. Let's pray together. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Guide me by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Bible reading this morning is from Psalm 88. That's found on page 825 in your pew Bibles. And as you will hear in a moment, uh, Psalm 88 is one of the most striking passages in the Bible. Um, it's unique. It's very striking. And uh, sort, of, sort of center you as I read it. Uh, I want to ask you a question. And this comes from how I was trained to preach. If you go to Calvin Seminary, when they teach you to preach, they teach you something called the four-page method of preaching. And I'm not going to explain that now. But one of the questions that you're taught to ask of the text when you preach, and this is a really good question, I think if you're doing any kind of personal Bible study, this is a good question to ask just as devotionally. What is God doing in this text? What is God's action in this text? What is God's saving action in this text? So that's the question I want you to think of as we read Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me, Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to hear my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I, I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the places of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor and darkness is my closest friend. This too is the word of the Lord. So what is God doing in this psalm? What is, what is God's saving action in this psalm? It's, um, 
Can we see any movement of God in this psalm? And, and the answer is, I think, it's pretty hard to see. This song is, is unremittingly dark and raw. And I think it's one of the darkest and the rawest places in all of Scripture. And if you're doing a series on the Psalms, you have to, in my opinion, look at this, the darkest of all the Psalms. It's different than, than, so last week we did a Psalm of Lament, right? This is two weeks in a row with a difficult Psalm. Last week we did a Psalm of Lament. This Psalm is a little different than a typical Psalm of Lament. If you remember last week in Psalm 74, there was at least a little window, a little slant of light in the middle of the psalm where the psalmist remembered God's saving acts. Oh, you were the one who, who, who parted the waters. You were the one who, who marked off day from night. You are the God who saves, right? So there's this memory at least of, of God's saving power. And that's typical in a psalm of lament. In a psalm of lament, you can have really dark pleas and cries but often then there's at least this moment where the light of God shines through. Like Psalm 13 is a classic example. How long will you reject me? Why do you turn your face away? And then at the very end it says, but I still trust in your unfailing love. This Psalm has no turn. There's no ray of sunlight shining through the boiling clouds in this Psalm. Let's look at the, the form of it. Let's look at the shape of it just for a second. I would say that it's roughly divided into two halves. Right in the middle of verse 9, it kind of splits there. There's sort of two movements of the psalm. At the beginning of the psalm, you have five verses where the psalmist names his problem and what he feels, and then he cries out to God for help. And then it sort of devolves into a series of accusations. You did this, Lord. You did this to me. You put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have taken away my closest friends. So it moves from, from Christ to help to accusation. Middle verse 9, you come to the second half of the psalm. It's the same pattern. Psalmist again names his sorrow, asks God, why, why, why aren't you helping me? And then it, the, the psalm ends with three accusations in a row. Right? Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor, and darkness is my closest friend. It goes from cry for help to accusation. It goes downward. It goes from bad to worse. That's the trajectory of this psalm. That's the trajectory of this poem. So where is God in this psalm? Where's the gospel here? Why is this psalm in Scripture? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire someone named Haman the Ezraite, to write this psalm? What is its holy purpose for us? What is its salvific purpose? Well, obviously, I've been thinking about that all week. And I've, I've come to the conclusion, I've become convinced that this psalm is something like God's alternative to death metal. I know that sounds weird, but Haman the Ezraite, Haman the Ezraite, in this psalm, is taking us to a death metal kind of place. Now, some of you are looking at me going, what are you talking about? What is death metal? It sounds absolutely awful. Well, I can fill you in. It is absolutely awful. If you know anything at all about modern music, rock and roll music, you know that there's a genre, a subgenre of rock and roll called heavy metal, right? You've heard that. 
And heavy metal is a kind of music that features very driving guitars and heavy beats and loud voices. It's very aggressive sounding, right? That's heavy metal. Well, death metal takes heavy metal to an extreme and it goes to a place of violence and despair. If despair had a sound, if, if rage took the form of music, it would sound like death metal. Here's the Wikipedia description. Death metal is an extreme subgenre of heavy metal music. It typically employs heavily distorted and low-tuned guitars played with techniques such as palm muting and tremolo picking, deep growling voice vocals and aggressive powerful drumming. It is the sound of blind rage. Even the names of the bands are disturbing. Slayer, Cannibal Corpse, Venom. I spent time this week going through death metal lyrics. It's no place you want to be. I, these are very, like, shockingly dark lyrics, okay? They describe graphic violence, and they put the listener in the place of the one committing the violence, and they glorify it, okay? There's hate, there's rage, there's a lot of, I mean, there's rage against society, rage against God. A lot of these lyrics are explicitly anti-Christian. And through the years, there have been people who are concerned with community standards have, have obviously worried about this and have filed protests against this kind of music. And after reading the lyrics, I can understand why. I would not be happy if my kids were listening to this. That's just the truth. But I don't want to stand here and condemn death metal, which frankly is easy. I want to ask a more important question, a more spiritual question. Why do so many people listen to this stuff? What is going on inside people that they listen to this stuff? It's not fun to listen to. Why, why Slayer from 1991 to 2013 sold 5 million albums? What is it about this music that draws people? Well, they're going to these plays, they're listening to this stuff because they feel rage and despair. They are hurting, they are angry. They feel condemned and abandoned by society. They feel the dark weight of despair. And so this music gives them an outlet for this rage that they feel, for this alienation that they feel. To go to a death metal concert would be to listen to thousands of souls crying out their pain. And while the music becomes cathartic for them, I don't think it's cathartic in a good way. Certainly, I think they feel a sense of release when they go to these concerts and scream and yell and, and participate. But it, though the catharsis is temporary, ultimately it's just leading them deeper into their rage. You get a Slayer t-shirt after the concert, you get a Slayer tattoo, you're essentially identifying yourself with the rage, with the anger. It's becoming part of your story. In Psalm 88, God has given us a better place to go with our rage and with our anger. Psalm 88 is like a room. And when we come to that place of rage and anger and maybe even despair, Psalm 88 is a room you can go to and you can shout and cry your pain to God. And instead of glorifying it and identifying with it like death metal music, God absorbs it 
and takes it into his story of redemption. Your despair becomes part of your redemption story, the true story of your life. Older Christian Reformed people here will remember the name Peter de Vries, novelist Peter de Vries. I think he wrote in the 50s. He came out of our tradition, um, but he had a very tortured relationship with his faith. Grew up CRC, um, but circumstances in his life really soured his faith. So it was a complicated thing, his faith. His sister committed suicide. His dad struggled with the depression his whole life. And then the worst thing that happened to him, his 10-year-old daughter got leukemia and died. One year after his daughter died of leukemia, Peter de Vries wrote a novel called The Blood of the Lamb. And this novel was clearly an attempt to work out the death of his daughter. The main character in this novel is a guy named Don Wanderhope. And when you hear the details of Don's life, you realize this is Peter de Vries. Don Wanderhope, uh, it's his wife who commits suicide. His dad loses his mind. And in the main, the main conflict in the story, his 11-year-old daughter, Carol, the apple of his eye, gets leukemia. And so Don is, is, it's all he has in the world. So he's driven out of his mind with, with worry. And so he does everything he can. He gets the best doctors. He sits by his daughter's side. When she's going through chemo, he holds her hand while the chemo burns her inside. He prays to God. He rages at God. He, please, Lord, save my daughter. And then they get good news. The chemo seems to be working. The scans show that the cancer is in remission. And Don is so happy He's going to throw a celebration with his nurses. He goes to the local cake shop and has them make a cake. It's got white icing. It's got little rosettes of red and green icing around the side and the name Carol, his daughter's name right in the middle. And he's going to carry it and invite the nurses and have a party for this remission. And on the way, as he's walking to the hospital, he passes a church, St. Catherine's Church. And he decides to go in there to say a final prayer of hope, pleading, thanksgiving, Continues on to the hospital, and as he gets up to his daughter's floor, he realizes something's wrong. All the nurses have concern on their faces. An infection is sweeping through the children's wing, and that infection has swept through Carol. He goes to her, and he sees that she does not have long to live, and he sits with her while she dies. Don stumbles out of the hospital, half crazy with grief, and he realizes somehow that he forgot the cake. He left the cake in the church. So he walks down to the church and goes in. He finds us sitting there in the pew, and he's walking out with the cake in his hand. And as he walks out of St. Catherine's Church, he sees that above the door of the exit door, there's a crucifix, life-size crucifix. Jesus, with his arms outstretched, his head bowed, hanging on the cross. And in a moment of rage, Don takes the cake, and with every ounce of his strength, he throws it at the crucifix, and the cake hits Jesus right in the face. And the white and red and the green icing flows down his beard. Now, how do you see that moment? Don throwing that cake at Jesus on the cross. Is that an act of blasphemy? Is that an act of desecration? I don't think so. 
I think what Don Wanderhope does with cake in that moment is what the psalmist does with words, what Haman the Ezraite does with words in Psalm 88. In the moment where Don throws that cake, St. Catherine's Church becomes a Psalm 88 kind of place, which is exactly what every church needs to be sometimes. Because the church is the church of the cross of Jesus Christ, and on the cross, Jesus came to bear all these things. And we as people are called to be Psalm 88 people, sometimes, to bear the rage of others and return it with grace. When I was in college, I had a good friend who was in a serious car accident with two of her friends. And um, she was okay, one of her friends was okay. The third friend, the one who was driving, let's call her Jane, um, was paralyzed from the waist down by the accident. It was devastating for her. About a week after the accident, um, she went with her other friend who was okay in the accident, let's call her Mary, and Mary's dad. The three of them went to visit Jane in the hospital. Mary's dad was a minister. So they got to the hospital, they spent a, a tear-stained hour with Jane. They walked out, and as they walked out, Mary said, I can't believe this, this is so ridiculous. God really messed this one up. And her father, the minister, whirled on her and said, don't you ever talk that way about God again. Now, while I appreciate the father's zeal, right, and, and, and his eagerness to defend God, I think in that moment that that, that well-meaning man was wrong. Psalm 88 shows us, I believe, that given the choice between silence, pious pretension, or honest rage, God would prefer to hear our honest rage because that's what Jesus came for. That's what Jesus died for. Verse 15, the psalmist uses the word despair to describe what he's feeling. It, it's an interesting word. We all know it. It's the only time the Hebrew word here is used. It's epuna. So it's a unique word for, for human suffering, for a unique kind of grief that the psalmist is going through. And it makes me wonder, and I'm not the first person to think this. Um, others have thought it, and there's no way of proving it. It makes me wonder if the poet of Psalm 88 is someone who just struggles with depression. Maybe Haman the Ezraite struggled with chronic depression. It kind of makes sense when you really look at the words. Like, for example, listen to verse 15 here. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. From my youth, right? That's how depression goes. Usually it starts with adolescence, and then it becomes this thing that returns over a lifetime. Depression is a terrible disease, and if you love someone with it, or if you have it, you know its unique weight. Catherine Green McRate, an Episcopal priest who struggles with depression herself, has written a book about it. The book is called Darkness is My Closest Friend, right? So the book gets its title from this psalm. And she describes depression this way. Depression is not just sadness or sorrow. Depression is not just negative thinking. Depression is not just being down. It's like walking barefoot on broken glass so that the weight of your body, the weight of your existence, grinds that glass further in with each moment. 
So when I'm depressed, the weight of my very existence grinds the shards of grief deeper into my soul. Every breath, every conscious moment hurts. That actually sounds a little bit of also about Psalm 88 and the psalmist, right? Your wrath lies heavy on me, that sense of weight. I'm confined and cannot escape. You've taken from me friend and neighbor and darkness as my closest friend. According to John Hopkins, roughly 10% of American adults will suffer from a depressive disorder in their lifetime. So one in 10. Pretty full church today. Probably 700 people here. 70 of you. 70 of you. And many more who love you will deal with this disease. My pastoral experience, that ratio seems about right. Is it possible that Psalm 88 was written by someone in the depths of depression? And is it possible that the Holy Spirit put this psalm in Scripture for people who suffer with this terrible disease? A sign that God knows the way to that place. A sign that God knows what it feels like to be in that place. And a sign that even when you're in that place, the hand of God is on you. Psalm 139. Even if I make my bed in the depths, even there you are with me, and your right hand will hold me fast. I wonder if that's also what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us in a verse like Luke 22, verse 53. In, in Luke's version of the gospel, when, when the soldiers come to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is leaving, he says these words, and, and maybe you remember them, Often we don't think about them much. He says, this is your hour, the hour when darkness reigns. And he says, yeah, okay, I'll come with you. This is your hour, the hour when darkness reigns. And after that, as you know in the story, all hell breaks loose for Jesus. And I, I don't use that term lightly. I mean it literally. Jesus descends into hell after that moment. From there on, everything decays to the point where Psalm 88 could be Jesus' prayer. Your wrath has swept over me. He bears all the wrath. You have completely engulfed me. He's completely engulfed. You've taken away friend and neighbor. That happened. And darkness is my closest friend. Jesus knows the way to the place of depression. Jesus knows what it feels like in the place of depression. And Jesus knows how to save you from that place. So is Psalm 88 a cheerful place to go? Is it one we love to read for our devotions? Is it a happy Saturday morning read? No, it is not. We should all read this psalm once in a while, even when we're feeling pretty good, because if the day comes where we have to go to that dark place, we will know that Jesus is there waiting for us, and he knows the way out. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord God, um, this is not an easy journey, not an easy place to go, but we see and we praise you for the fact that you've gone there ahead of us. Um, we pray for all those in, in our lives and all those here who know the terrible weight of, of this disease and the terrible weight of other kinds of losses that push us towards a place of despair. Lord, in our despair, 
Help us not to turn inward. Help us to turn to you. And, and Lord, help, let us know that even if, if we can't hold on, you always can. In Christ's name, amen.